Welcome, everybody, to another episode of The Modern Agilist. On this show, we like to bring in thought leaders, speakers, people who have unique experiences, and really get the lowdown on what's going on in modern agility. Today, we have the pleasure of having Lauren Schmidt on the show. We have actually worked with her in the past in various contexts and have always been impressed with her leadership and insight and just the information she brings to the table. And so we're actually really uh, excited to have her on the show and to talk through her journey. Hi, thank you guys so much for the glowing introduction. I really appreciate it and I'm excited to be here. Yeah, absolutely. Lauren, if you could, you just give us and our listeners a background uh, about yourself, what you're into, what you've been doing and what you've done, and, and just give us that background so that they know who you are and we can dive into some topics. Yeah, absolutely. I will try and keep it short, but I feel like this is relevant. So I studied philosophy in undergrad, always thought I would go to law school. I knew there was a reason. I knew it. <laughs> Yeah, I, that did not happen, spoiler alert, but I really loved the study of philosophy. And so I found myself after numerous sort of attempts to find work that I really was passionate, I found myself in project management, which I felt was close, but still I had to mom people way too much. It was not ideal for me as a person. This Marie Kondo does not bring me joy. When I found the agile philosophy and all of the information that goes along with it, I was like, yes, this speaks to me. This is the way that I want to work with teams. This is the way that I want to make a living. So went from potentially going into law to going into project management and then found myself um, in a couple agile shops. I've worked somewhat with Scrum in a business intelligence capacity. And then I went into a software development space and that's where I've been and that's what I enjoy doing. Wow. Wow. Yeah, that's a, it's interesting too, because we always have guests or people that we talk to who have pretty unexpected backgrounds. So we had somebody else on Justice, you recall, I think it was Bernie Maloney, who was into psychology and stuff like that too. Sure, interesting to hear people who are into agile backgrounds right now were totally not started that way. It's sure interesting how many people don't start that way, I guess is what I'm trying to say. One thing that's been brought up in the past with everybody introducing their background and someone will say, what's the archetype of a really successful agilist? Mm -hmm. And some of the things like that I've observed is a philosophical bent mm -hmm. to like technical <laughs> writing, like systems thinking, and th those kind of things coming together, create someone who sees this as interesting and then therefore they put their energy into it. Lauren, you have. MBA, scaled, agile, certified, super scaled. <laughs> inside joke, inside joke. <laughs> what is the SASM again? It is the scaled, agile, Scrum Master certification. So for an organization that's utilizing SAFE, that would okay. be the certification that you would get if you were a Scrum Master in that space. I Just a real quick funny story is I've never had the pleasure of being able to use that certification. I've never gone to or worked at an organization that was really using SAFE, but I did learning about it. And as Justice, you have infinite certifications. Once you're really into it, you're like, well, I might as well get certified. But uh, you know, I, I definitely think it's valuable and I think it's interesting. Um, but I have not had the pleasure of using it. I would like to someday cool. though. 
you know what, Lauren, if it's in your LinkedIn bio, you're using it. So yeah. mission yeah. accomplished. <laughs> Yeah, you've got the cert to show the cert. And then you have PMP. So um, trace this line then. Started in philosophy, then considered law, went into project management, and then found yourself in the agile space. Is that is that line, Trace? Yes, it is. Yes. And my besides my master's degree, my PMP was my first certification. And I was in the, the waterfall project management space for quite a while. So I wanted to make sure that I had the credential to go along with it. But at the same time, I knew that was not my landing place. I think now, you know, working with Scrum and working with safe in at least some capacity. I think that is, is much more enjoyable. There's always room to grow, but I, I don't foresee myself going back to traditional PMP anytime soon, but it's a nice certification to have. Sure. I'm, I'm interested. We, now that you're saying that too, you mentioned in your introduction that for traditional project management, where I've had plenty of experience as well, you felt like you had to air quotes, mom people a lot. Is that what you said? And, yes. and I'm curious why you felt that way and why you don't feel that way as an agilist. Maybe if you can pack that a bit. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I just, I felt as the project manager, the person who manages the project, mm -hmm. other people had individual responsibilities, but they really didn't care to see or have any sort of agency over the big picture. Mm -hmm. They did the little things that I assigned them, sometimes willingly, sometimes not, but either way, that was their wheelhouse. And that was the only place that they played in. And so I had to do all of the overall coordination. But then, of course, if there was someone who wasn't doing things in a timely manner or wasn't responding when everyone else was, you really had to just hound people. And that's that's not something I find enjoyable. So yeah, I had to play mom a little more than I liked. And in the agile space, I think that because everything is so focused on the team and the team succeeding or failing together, having shared responsibilities, everyone feels like they have a lot more stake in the overall outcome. And they also feel like they have the agency to decide this is an important story and here's the technical reason why, or mm. this is the direction that we think we should go. Not that they can do it in a vacuum, but they just feel like they have so much more agency over that. And mm. that's the way that I've seen it play out um, in the agile spaces I've worked. I see. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. I always, a couple things you're saying are things that justice, I'm sure you've heard me say a lot is I am not a frameworks by the book type of person. I'd rather see teams and organizations wield the agile mentality by coming up with some custom fit stuff. So the processes and, and the things that need to happen and the way that we go about them, organizations should come from best practices and maybe a hodgepodge, maybe not different approaches that are, are catered to, you know, an, an organization or to a group of individuals, but also I've said too, that I don't want to be a facilitator or I've always said babysitter mm -hmm. as an agilist, what, whatever level of agilist you are, right? I don't want to be a babysitter. I want to make sure that we have the constructs in place that teams and individuals can have start to build a, a sense of ownership and a culture of self-service. And I think that's maybe resonates a little bit with what you're saying. So very, I still remember not having a real weird way of thinking or earlier in my journey on in agility and someone made the comment and they said, Hey, a lot of the people on your team, a team that I was serving were completely just kind of chilling this last sprint. Like basically they were saying like your resources were not fully utilized in this past sprint. 
Mm. And I was in a meeting with many other people. I got sweaty. My hands got sweaty, my forehead. And I was like, ah, I still had this mindset that it was my job to ensure that everyone was busy all the time. Like I had Mm -hmm. such a weird way of thinking. And looking back at that sometime, it is a, it's a real, it's a weird and twisted way of thinking. One, that's your job. And two, that's actually a path for highly efficient delivery to have a maximum resource utilization, which is the exact opposite. It's strange, this entire space of scrum mastering agile stuff. It's like a lot of Jedi mind tricks on yourself. Yeah, I definitely, I suffered from from some of that. And I also think that it was difficult because in, in an agile space, you more often than not, at least have a team that's working together. So you have people to bounce ideas off of and, and all those good things. But when I was a project manager, I, I really didn't have anyone else. I had no way to inspect and adapt because it was just me saying, okay, this is the way we said we were going to do it. And this is how we are going to do it. End of story. <laughs> mm-hmm. Interesting. Now, now, how about the trade-off? When you're not in the command and control position, do you ever miss aspects of it? I think the only thing that I miss is I really like things done a certain way. And that doesn't mean that's the best way. But I'm one of those people that like I'm a zero inbox person and my house is very organized. I have, I literally have sleep in my calendar. Like I still am very. You do too? (laughs) I do that too, yeah. 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 Like it just, it helps me. And so when I see other people that function better in what to me seemed like a willy nilly way of going through life, it's still just really hard for me to wrap my head around and I see the results and they're good results. So I am not going to burden them with the way that I do things. Now, if I see bad results, I will recommend some changes, but otherwise it's still, it, it just, I don't know, it makes the hair on the back of my neck stand up when I see people doing things where I'm like, ah, there's a better way. But if this works for the team, then let's make sure that we continue on a path that works for the team. One of the, you're saying that too, and I agree entirely. One of the things that I've run into in the past and even where I am now for a while was that a number of teams, a number of scrum masters and everybody has their own flavor of doing things and their own approach. Now it might fit into some sort of an agreed upon framework or way of approaching things in general. But everybody does stuff a little bit differently. And then when there's members of a team who don't really adhere to a a, a defined process or an agreed upon process or an approach, there's, I found a little bit of, without being in some sort of a command and control type of role, there's a little bit of difficulty then saying, okay, this is how we do it here. You Mm -hmm. can do, you can put your own spin on things, but this is how we have discussed and agreed upon. And so now there's, without that. And a lot of times they'll call them agile coaches or senior agile members or something like that, where they can say, okay, let's, we'll, we let you do your own thing. We'll let you just put your own spin on things. But at some point there's, you're going beyond the bounds of what we've agreed upon. And it's looking like something different. So if you're in an organization that wants to keep things relatively consistent, that's the only kind of catch I've run into with not having somebody at that senior level or in that command associated to their role that can, can be mm-hmm. the the, the backstop to say, okay, let's put a pause on there. That's my only kind of gripe with having been an agilist, a scrum master for some time. I've seen that at times. So I don't know if, if that's something that you've run into as well before. Yeah, I definitely have had more or less resistance from folks um, when it comes to adhering to either organizational norms or even the team's norm. I have been fortunate that I've never had anyone just blatantly disregard everything and wants to watch the world burn. Mm-hmm. Uh, but 
there have been people who don't agree with things. And for the most part, we've been able to address that either as a team or as an organization where we just reflect on anything that they would do differently. And we have, whether it's, like I said, the larger organization or the team, come together and say, this is the way we were doing it and here's why. If you want to run an experiment with your proposition, maybe work that in, but really just approaching it with the idea that like everyone has positive intention. We don't just have someone here going rogue for no reason. But at the same time, if we go through this exercise and we try it and it doesn't work, you do have to be reasonable to a certain extent. And if it gets to be, you know, too extreme, maybe this organization or, or this team is not the right fit for you. And that's the other, I guess, the flip side of that coin that I'm getting at too, is there, there are times I've experienced in certain organizations too, we've wanted to try something or we've said something or something has come up where I'm like, let's do the experiment or let's go this direction. And I'm gung ho. But then the people that you report up to are like, that's not, I don't understand. That's not what we're going to do. So that's the other thing is if you're not, if there's not some end all be all agile person who says, this is, this is the buck stops with me, basically we do whatever we want, but the buck stops here, they can understand what you're trying to do and push for it at an organizational level that has sometime also, I've had struggles with that as well. So yeah, I, I and what I'm you're just saying so. I was just going to say, anecdotally, I have heard from many people who work in the Agile space that one of the main reasons that Agile transformation fails is because you don't have that higher level support. And mm -hmm. so I can imagine that is very difficult when you have boots on the ground people who are saying, oh, yeah, let's try this experiment. Maybe we can. This is our hypothesis. It is going to whatever, increase velocity. But we don't know unless we try. If so-and-so is concerned that it actually may decrease velocity, that is a valid concern. But you're never going to know if it's one or the other or even the same if you don't let them run the experiment. If you don't have that kind of support, yeah, I could definitely see problems. <laughs> yeah. Frustration at the least, right? Yeah. You guys sound so kind. My orientation is <laughs> this is the right way. You don't want to do it. Come get at me when you guys fall apart. Your man's on fire. But <laughs> <laughs> well, see, that's where you, that, and not to sound odd, not to sound weird in terms of this episode, but this is why I advocate that there needs to be that one buck stops here type of person or group, right? That says, fine, we could try it. We can do it, whatever. Or somebody like Justice says, this is the right way to do it. I'm the boots on the ground guy and I want to, I want to do it this way. And here's why. If there's some rationale behind it, there should be some group that can then enforce it at an organizational level. And sometimes you hear a lot of, I'm a scrum master. I work with the team. I help them out. And I go, yeah, but there, there are times where you need that agilist, for lack of a better term, that says, okay, yeah, I see the scrum master. I know what they're trying to do. I know why they're trying to do it. I understand what the team wants to try. And then can back it up because then you don't, you, you can reduce that need for some of that conflict. I think the, the unnecessary conflict. Yeah. I like the idea of having, I've worked at organizations that have uh, a director of agile and usually that was the person who would in the end decide this experiment that we let you do. Is it something we want to adopt or not? And they set up the guide rails. So not guardrails, but guide rails to say, these are the best practices that we've come up with. And here's how we got here. If you have a place where you can document the experiments, that's great too, because you'll always have people circling in and out being like, oh yeah, let's try this. Actually, we tried it six months ago, did not go well. <laughs> so uh, to have someone who makes that decision and can explain it to anyone who might come in with new ideas, I, I think is definitely helpful. That's cool. 
So another thing, just to switch gears a little bit, uh, you in your LinkedIn profile, I see this recovering productivity junkie. Uh, and yeah. some I've seen in some of your <laughs> writings or commentary elsewhere, you have a nasty habit of trying to turn unproductive things into productive things. Now, before yeah. you get into that, I thought I was like on top of things because I have a wake up and go to bed like a, alarm in my calendar, but I don't actually have the sleep <laughs> schedule. It's implied, which is maybe a mistake because that is unblocked time that someone maybe could grab with a Calendly link or something. Do you want to talk about your, uh, your recovery from this uh, productivity? Yeah, absolutely. And I will say like anyone recovering from anything, whether it's serious or, or somewhat joking like this, it is a journey and I, and it's never done. And I would not even say at this point that I am good at reigning in my productivity tendencies, but I'm working on it and I probably will for the rest of my life. I definitely have a tendency to try and optimize everything. My husband is always making fun of me because I will, even something as simple as I know I want to go to dinner and here's when I want to go. So I'm going to look at Google Maps, see how long it takes. I'll put like the travel time in the calendar, something like that, which I think maybe some people could get behind. So I did travel time in the calendar as well. Yeah. yeah. It, it could be like 30 minutes and there's a whole yes. half an hour that you can't do anything if you're driving. But yeah. So that I think is potentially reasonable, definitely not necessary, but potentially reasonable, but even something like relaxation time, you can think, okay, I'm going to shut the world off and I'm going to relax. I think, how can I make the most of my relaxation time? What gets me the biggest bang from my buck in wow. resetting my mind? And I, yeah, I, I have to rein in the tendency to even do something like that, where I say, okay, I'm going to block this time to meditate. Rather than just saying, I'm going to block this time to meditate. I'm like, I'm going to block this time to meditate. And I'm going to research in advance, which meditations I think will be good. And I just, I have that tendency to take everything to the nth degree and have a hard time letting go sometimes. But it's definitely something that I have found benefits from some of these tendencies. It's just like anything else. If you take it to an extreme, it's not good. Now, just a, a word to our listeners. So usually we encourage people to enter this field and we're eager about informing people. But be warned, this is the competition you face by entering this field. This, yeah. this You mentioned, Lauren, as well, that you made a comment, kind of a thumbs up on the idea of giving your partner access to the calendar and being encouraging, mm -hmm. encouraging them to book time. I, for the first time, did something similar. I got ah. married in September and mm -hmm. I was in my wife is not really a driven by a calendar type person. I said, listen, we need a shared calendar. I'll share my stuff here. And I was encouraging her, we can put stuff on here. And she's like, how do I know? Whatever. And so I said, listen, you can use a Calendly link. I'm very, I'm a big fan of Calendly with overlapping calendars. And she looked at me like we were a half step away from divorce. So I've had to step back <laughs> a little bit from that. It's interesting that you say that too, Justice. I, my wife, I have a shared calendar and I share calendars with everybody. I'm somewhere in between both of you, I think on, on the calendar deal. But I said the same thing to my wife. I was like, hey, if it's not in the calendar, I won't know about it. You could tell me yeah. until, you're, until you're blue in the face, but I won't know about it. And she's like, okay, great. And so I'm like, hey, ready to roll? She's like, no, we have something today. Something like this one time. And I'm like, what are you talking about? It's not a calendar. She's like, well, where? She's like, on this paper calendar over here. I'm like, no. Before we shift gears, I will say, Lauren, have you read Deep Work? No, I'm going to Google it right now, though. Deep Work is one of the most impactful books I've ever read as far as like solving problems or whatever. 
And mm -hmm. the, the, the reason why I think this is related is for a busy person who what's the next thing, next thing. It can communicate that a person's just busy hopping, but the idea of booking time for deep work, mm -hmm. no communication. And I will, I'm going to go through this long form writing, long form reading, deep meditation on a solid problem. It is a unlock superpower. So it is compatible with the calendar driven approach. I definitely encourage you to check that out. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. It's interesting too. You mentioned that like deep work and, and Lauren, your disposition to planning things out and seeing where you can get the most bang for your buck when you do certain things. <laughs> I, I suggested a book to myself and another colleague. It's called Essentialism. Have you heard of that book? Nope. It's going on the list though. <laughs> <laughs> on the calendar. <laughs> if, um, if you all know me, like I, I am, I like to make sure things are done thoroughly and, and to a certain level, but, and I'm not trying to get away from where we're talking about, but I'm trying to bake this in and it's it essentially falls in with what you were just talking about with deep work and some of the other stuff, because it's about doing less better, not less, mm -hmm. but like less things better in your, you have a disciplined pursuit of being and having less stuff, doing just certain things really well, as opposed to doing all things okay crap kind of, yeah <laughs> you know and you've, you that 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 idea is not new and nothing like that is new but it just talks about that idea the mentality of and i'm always trying like I, the other day just a real world example i had a big old box of um chargers and wires and uh i know i could have used them but i ended up just throwing them all away uh because i just didn't want to deal with that because i, I had probably just one out of the hundred of the rave man yeah, sure enough, I needed that one, so I had to buy. <laughs> yeah, but I bought a really good one for its replacement. So, but in the, in the context of an agile, this is what I'm trying to to get at. Really, have you experienced a way that you can say, "Here are the things that an agilist or a scrum master, or an agile coach, should do really well"? These are the few core things in your experience that that really serve an agilist really well, and that you don't have to do everything awesome if you have these core things. Mm -hmm. 80 yeah. I, yeah. Uh huh. I would agree. For me, I also have, again, with my tendencies, I have for years tried to do everything 100%. And I've realized that, again, that last 20%, you're not getting a huge amount of value. Like it's incremental, but it's really not that impressive. I've had to rein that tendency in. And I think that if you are the kind of person who has those tendencies, you're still fine. You can overcome them. You can learn to work with them. But some of the things that I, I definitely think you either need to be good at or you need to learn to be good at would be certainly working with people. Uh, I have seen people who know the scrum guide in and out and mm -hmm. they can recite the agile principles in their sleep but they just suck to work with and no one wants to work with them. And that's a skill you can learn. That's something you can get better at. It's not a prerequisite. You yeah. can you know, learn as you go, but if you're not willing to be empathetic and to learn what makes people pick and um, what incentivizes them to, to do work and really just how to work with a team, I think that's the, the biggest piece because like I said, you can have a sticky note. If you always forget the principles or if you always forget the ceremonies, that stuff you can write down and you can just keep it. But if you're not a good people person, it doesn't mean you have to be outgoing or anything like that. It's just, you have to be able to work with people, I think is the biggest thing. Mm -hmm. That's that in particular, that working with people and understanding what makes them tick. I think 
maybe this is where some of the uh, unique backgrounds that we started our conversation with kind of come into play. It's that this difficult sometime. I think even for myself, I, I have somewhat of a unique background, but not that um, abnormal to, I think what most people who go into being a scrum master or something like that follows an en engineer is doing development and worked work in project management and all that stuff. And I find myself sometimes being aware that I have to understand how, where people come from and keep my emotions in check and understand what's going on. But there are times when I just get on a meeting and be, all right, let's roll and then just go into things. And okay. I, I never want to be that person who's hard to work with because it doesn't matter how good you are. Yeah. It's, it's really great what you're saying. Yeah. And I'll say I have some of those tendencies too, because I am so habitually regimented. I'll go into a meeting. I'll be like, all right, it's stand up. Let's go. And that's fine if you have a team that responds to that. But a lot of teams, even though it's only a 15 minute meeting, a lot of teams need a little bit of a warm up where they're like, Hey, how's everybody doing? And I, I personally don't need those things. I like them, but I don't need them. But then there are people who absolutely do. They just they won't get into the groove. They won't really participate. They just need that sort of opener. And that's just an example, but there's all kinds of sort of soft things that you might learn about the team that they do better if we do this. And if you're not willing to be receptive to feedback that is either forthright or feedback that you can see yourself, oh, when I ask them about how things are going, they are a lot more talkative throughout the rest of the meeting. And we obviously like participation. So there's something like that where you have to deduce it on your own and then implement it going forward. Mm -hmm. So Lauren, just to shift gears a little bit, because I feel like you were, when we met a couple of years ago, whenever that was a little bit further along in certain ideas, scrum communities of practice and even team topologies. And I found recently Team Topologies is probably the book I recommend more than anything to anyone on organizational design. Mm -hmm. Would you mind talking a little bit about what the heck a community practice is and what is Team Topologies and how that plays into things, if you could? Yeah, I really like Team Topologies, and it was not something that I spearheaded or would have even, I think, probably known about if I hadn't been in an organization that was implementing it. And so for anyone who hasn't um, read it or doesn't feel like Googling it. It's basically you have different teams that do different kinds of work and not like front end, back end, but you'll have a stream aligned team that is um, aligned with a certain value stream. And then you'll have enabling teams that provide services to the stream aligned teams and to any other teams. You can also have platform teams that support a typically software, but a, a platform service that others will use, not necessarily enabling teams, but making sure that platform exists and is sustained on its own so that anyone who needs to use it can self-service and use the platform. as. And then I think the fourth one, hopefully I'm not missing one, but again, people can Google. The fourth one would be the complicated subsystem. And um, that is really just like a team that doesn't fit into any of the other categories and does weird stuff, but mm -hmm. stuff that's needed. So you separate the teams, still generally full stack, but you separate them and so that they have different purposes within the organization. And I've worked at an uh, organization that did use that, and I really liked it. I'm at a different organization currently, and they are very different. So I don't necessarily think that right now where they are, utilizing team topologies makes sense. They're a lot younger, a lot smaller. So potentially not something for the current state, but definitely something that I've already talked with people about and looking at using for future states. So 
that's my TLDR on team topologies. Yeah. Let me ask you too. So as a scrum master or as an agilist or an agile coach at an organization, when you talk to somebody about team topologies and some reorganization that it involves, how do you kind of make that palatable and explain that to somebody so that they have some, some of the higher ups in the organization have that buy-in so that that's something that actually happens as an agilist. How, how do you do that? What, what's your tact on that? I would hope that I have some specific examples because I think it's difficult when you just talk about things in theory, trying mm -hmm. to convince people, mm -hmm. but I have seen in practice, um, utilization of team topologies alleviate some of the common things that are problems for organizations that have scrum teams that just do everything, but don't necessarily have the focus of one of the team types that exists in team topologies. So for example, commonly issues with who owns ABC, whatever it may be. And it ends up being like a hot potato. No one really owns it, but you touched it last. So now it's your problem. And you want to know about that. Yeah. You know, yeah exactly. The term I've heard to describe that, which I find so helpful is dilution of responsibility or responsibility mm -hmm. dilution. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I, yeah, I've definitely seen that. And one of the things that, again, depending on what this ABC thing is, but a lot of times it's a platform. It's something that everyone uses that no one really wants to maintain. <laughs> and so in the team topologies world, you would have a platform team and maybe they have one platform if it's really big and that's all that they own and maintain. But a lot of times they'll have multiple platforms because they are used to owning and maintaining platforms. So again, assuming that it's from a workload perspective, it's okay. They could have multiple platforms, but you would then know, okay, this is the team that owns this thing. I need to work with them because it's, it's not working or I need to make a change or whatever the case might be. So that's just like one example. But in general, I would recommend finding the pain points that the organization is experiencing currently and thinking of how team topologies may benefit them and alleviate some of those pain points. That's good. So don't just put the book on the desk and be like, yeah. right here, guys. <laughs> the answer to all your problems. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking my language there, not by the book. Yeah, yeah. And that's that's my take on, on team topologies. And then something else that you had mentioned was communities of practice. And certainly there can be more or less formal communities of practice. Everywhere I've worked, there's been an informal community of practice with the scrum masters or anyone else who wants to join and talk about whether it's Scrum or, or any Agile practices, really. And it's just a place to share what you've been experiencing and experiments you've tried that have worked well, that haven't, all that good stuff. But then, of course, there could be, you know, larger ones in geographic areas. There's oftentimes Agile communities of practice. Everyone's online, so there is no geography. There's other groups you can join that are all over the place. And they can be more specific if you're really into safe and you're just like a safe evangelist. And, and I evangelist, excuse me, and, and that's your thing. I'm sure there's one for that. But then there's also the people like me who think that there's a, a time and a place for almost anything that you want to try. So I like being involved in communities of practice that are a little bit more flexible. Interesting. So a little bit more of a, have some holistic discussion, basically, is what you're saying. Yeah. And again, starting with my academic background in philosophy, I think there's lots of methodologies, frameworks, recommendations, whatever you want to call it, ways to execute on the Agile principles. But I also think that there's bound to be so much more that we haven't written down yet. As long as it goes with the principles, 
you can pretty much try anything. Mm -hmm. And there's Scrum, obviously, and Kanban, and all the words that we know. And these are great. And I like them. They're probably my favorite way of doing things. But at the same time, I can't believe that this, this is it. There's got to be more. And I like being around people who they really look at it from a philosophical perspective. And then they try and think of what we haven't done yet that we could try. Mm -hmm. That's awesome. That's great. It, Lauren, I wanted to ask you a little bit is it's, it's relatively common to meet people who have a deep understanding of their craft and yet aren't great at presenting that. And it's, you're not one of those people. Your uh, website, LaurenMSchmidt.com looks awesome. I can see like uh, your CV on here, everything. It has this high presentation level, which you can be high presentation, low hands-on skill, or you can be high skill, low presentation, but to have both is pretty amazing. Do you want to, could you speak at all to the way we present ourselves as thought leaders in this agile space and what you think about that? Yeah, that's definitely. Good. That's good. That's good. Yeah. Yeah, I would definitely like to get your take too. But I'll say for me, and I think for a lot of people, imposter syndrome is a very common thing these days. And I am no exception to that. I, I made the mistake of listening to all of your podcasts before coming on here and doing <laughs> one with you. Um, and you... <laughs> So many great people who've written books and have spoken at conferences. I'm just a regular person who enjoys this stuff and sees it as a decent way to make money. I'm going to be the regular person. I like representing that. But at the same time, you do need to present yourself in a certain way if you want to be taken seriously. And you do need to put in the time and the effort to learn and to try things in the space. Because like you said, you can present yourself one way and then get a job and you're woefully inequipped because you have a really great website, but you actually can't deliver on any of the things. Don't know so, nothing yeah. about that, guys. <laughs> yeah. So it, it, it can happen, sure. But I like to be, again, with my tendency to optimize, I like to be in the 80th, like 75, 80th percentile for everything. I am not the smartest person in the room. I don't want to be in that room. I don't have the best website. I'm not, I don't come from a developer background, but I learn enough to execute enough in both of those areas of my life. And that's really where I find, again, with my perpetual attempt to get the most value out of things, that's where I find the most value to, to be for, for me personally. Mm -hmm. That's a, that's a great, a great take. Justice, I'm interested to, to see what your take is on the question you asked too, because um, I know we've talked about it before. Man, I'm not the one being interviewed, but I, I know, but you know, <laughs> Lauren asked for it. So, okay, said, okay. My take on this is that you, as soon as you enter into the thinking about what you're thinking, you are in a death spiral. And the more I can focus on the mission without being preoccupied about how I'm performing or how others perceive me, the better it is. So it's what is the mission, like a dog getting a ball. Okay. And so there's that. There's also too, like this imposter syndrome is deep because sometimes it's not, it's really a, two things. It's one, it's man, I'm not good enough. I don't know enough. I don't have enough experience, but it's also like a drastic over consideration of where everyone else is at. Like everyone is just some pretty people are people, normal people. It's easy to start to think that everyone's an Albert Einstein and you're just a normie. And so I, I guess in my experience, I, I actually have to put forth a presentation on what I think my skills are and step away for some time and then come back and, and try to 
go over it a few times to capture it and not put a, put aside fear and just say, what are the facts here? And sometimes what happens there is I'll come away and not look at something I've written as far as trying to present myself. And after some time, come back and read it. I'm like, who is this person? This sounds awesome. I'm like impressed with my own stuff. But it's just you've stepped out of that imposter syndrome long enough to actually make an impactful statement. And uh, frankly, in some circumstances that I've been put in of like high pressure, high responsibility on a cons consultation level, I effectively will put on a mask of like, I'm going to war. This is the mission, uh, mission impossible status and come in and just go for it and maybe cry out in a few months when the contract's over. So, <laughs> mm -hmm. It's interesting that you, you both are saying something is that you mentioned, I'm not special, no one's special, that kind of thing. And just then you brought up Albert Einstein and it, it, it made me think of some quotes, you know, from Einstein. And it's just the one he said, I have no special talents. It's this is Einstein saying this. Um, I'm only passionately, yeah, I'm only passionately curious. So I like that. Yeah. And I think he also said that if you can't explain it to a six-year-old, that you don't really something that you're yeah. an expert. And I have, and I just say my little two bits here on this topic, but I have felt similarly too that I was a project manager. I was an engineer. What am I doing as an agilist sometimes? But then I think I enjoy this. I'm into this. This is the, the kind of thing that makes me tick and wakes me up sometime in the, in the middle of the night thinking of things. And I don't think that you have to know all the jargon, all the books and everything like that to be an effective agilist. That, I guess that's what I'm getting is that you need to be passionate about it and start to start and continue to dig deeper. And as you do that, then you can have stuff that you can put out there professionally and even with teams to say, Hey, look, I've done this. I had this experience. I know what I'm talking about. Let me explain it to you. Let me break it down. And I think that's the key is just to be passionate, interested, and be able to explain what you're doing and why you're doing it. I think those make it a really effective agilist. That's one yeah, thing. I, yeah. Go ahead, Lon. All I was going to say is I love that. The only problem is I have explained to my parents what I do no less than 30 times and they still have no idea. So I don't know if I'm hitting that. I, mean, I don't know if I'm hitting that mark. How old are your parents? Maybe it's not six-year-old. Maybe it's like, what, 40, 50-year-old? Yeah. <laughs> okay. I revert back to IT project management. Your people are like, oh, okay. It doesn't sound cool, but. Oh, oh I see. <laughs> when you explain it to someone. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> I do stuff. Yeah. <laughs> Now, now, Lauren, we've talked a, a, a lot. It's come up with the, the human element. And mm -hmm. then another two things I notice on your stuff is a wise her. Am I saying that right? Wiseher.com. Yeah. Wise her. Yeah. And, and then also a big brothers and big sisters. So I wonder if you could talk about these two. Yeah, absolutely. Wise her is a, an organization that allows for whether it be mentoring or just brain picking, however you want to describe that. It, it is something that is aimed at women, but I, I don't believe it's only women that can use it. But the idea being that to, to find mentors and to find people who do the work that you're interested in doing as a woman can be somewhat challenging. Women, they are often teachers in the traditional sense. A lot of women do suffer from imposter syndrome and they don't feel comfortable saying that they're an expertise in something. They also don't feel comfortable reaching out to learn more about something. So it tries to pair up 
individuals who have an, an area of expertise with individuals who are looking to learn a, bit, a little bit more about that area. So my calendar does not have sleep on it, but my work calendar or website. And so if anyone is interested in being a Scrum Master, talking about being a Scrum Master or Scrum or Agile or anything of the sort, um, you can find me on that website. And I've had a couple calls, not, not anything huge, but at the same time, I just I'm one of those people that I, I like to be open. I like to serve as a servant leader, of course, but I, I really like to serve within the industry. And then that ties into Big Brothers Big Sisters, which I think most people know generally the organization for their community-based program, which is you get paired as a big with a little, and you can just do whatever. You hang out, you go to baseball games, whatever the case. But for me in particular, if you can't guess, given all the things you know about me already, I don't do well with small children. They are an, a source of anxiety for me. Well, yeah, so they have, especially if you're in the Pittsburgh area or if, if you're in another major metro area, they typically have the Mentor 2.0 program, which is a program where you get paired with a ninth grader and it's only school-based. So I know a lot of times people are like, oh, I don't have the time or I don't want to spend money taking these kids to like concerts and things. So this is a school-based program where you interact with them at their school. Usually it's five in the evening, so it's meant to be accommodating for work hours, but um, you interact with them at their school. And then there's an online portion where you're messaging and doing lessons together online, but you stay with them from ninth grade through graduation. And then once they're you know, no longer minors, you can have whatever kind of relationship you want with them. But this is my second time through the program and I have a, a mentee. So instead of like big and little, it's mentor and mentee. And I have my second mentee graduating this year. So I think that one, again, bang for your buck. I think that one, is the one where if you're a busy professional, if you have a lot of things you already do in the community and you're like, I cannot add one more thing to my plate, mm -hmm. this is the lowest intensity that you can really engage in, but it is still impactful because these are teenagers, these are like the, the years that matter a whole lot, but you're not putting in so much time where you're like smothering them like their parents probably are right now. You're just another adult in their life, someone to bounce ideas off of, someone to ask questions to that they're not comfortable talking to their parents about, or they just hate them for no reason right now, but they'll ask you questions. Yeah. So that's a little bit about the, those two organizations. That's awesome. That's yeah, I, awesome. It, it's one of the, one of the quotes I saw in your stuff, you brought attention to is you're talking about it at the end of people's lives. They won't wish they'd worked longer hours. They wish they'd spent more time with family, mm -hmm. meaningful things like that. And for someone as busy and as engaged and planned out as you are to say, listen, this is our priority to speak into a person's life who needs it. It's very touching and speaks to what your real values are. So I appreciate that. Thank you. Yeah. And, and I'll say besides the fact that obviously I love it and I'm going to do it again, I'll hopefully get paired with another ninth grader next year. It's a really flexible program. So a lot of people are like, oh no, I don't want to sign up for four years. Of course, they would like you to, to stay with this individual for those four years. But even if you can only do a year or whatever it might end up being, you don't know the impact that you have on these people's lives and, until you give it a shot. So don't be afraid. That's awesome. That's great. Hey, we're nearing the end of our time, official time here for the episode, and we can cut out some of this stuff, but I just wanted to give you the heads up, but maybe, um, in the last couple minutes here, is there anything else that you would like to share with the audience about yourself or how people can get in touch with you aside from the things that we just went through? Now's the time that feel free to do that. And then after this, maybe you can hang on a minute. I just wanted to, we can chat and wrap up after we stop the recording. So. 
Go for it. What? Uh, how, how, oh, go ahead, Justice. No, it's going to be as a part of that too. It's interesting, like where you perceive. What are the next steps for you? Like, right? Yeah. In, in general, like a life's journey, or specifically in your uh, agility journey, what are you thinking? Yeah, you did mention my website earlier, but it's Lauren M. As in Marie Schmidt at G or not at Gmail. That's my email if they want it. It's Lauren Emerson Marie Schmidt.com or Lauren M. Schmidt on LinkedIn. And I am pretty responsive in either of those capacities. So that's how people can find me. And as for what I think I'm going to be doing next, I actually did just start a, a new job about two months ago. So I like to, again, try and focus in one area at a time. So I'm definitely still ramping up there and I'll probably spend a lot of my time focused on that. Maybe the next four months, usually I try and do six months where I really hone in on something and then I feel comfortable. A lot of people, a lot of people will even say for the first six months in a new job, you're not even that efficient. You're just learning so much. So for the first six months, I'll probably continue to focus on that. But I do like pretty much everyone at this point, I hope with the world opening back up that there will be more opportunities to go to conferences, meet with people in person, uh, either through organizations or just people that I have over the past couple of years met online that we weren't comfortable meeting in person then, but maybe now. I also, I always want to practice my public speaking. So this is a good opportunity. I don't have to worry about how I look, but I am practicing public speaking. So I would like to maybe someday get into presentations, public speaking events, that kind of thing. So yeah, that's where I see myself in the next six months to a year. I want to thank you, you know, for, for joining us today and starting to, to have some discussions with us. We can cut some of this out, but I just thank you so much for joining us today. This is, this has been a really great mm -hmm. conversation. It's just been a lot of fun. So. Oh, I had so much fun. I really appreciate it. 